I'm going to start with prayer and then uh, have your Bibles ready. We're going to be flipping around to various passages this morning. But let's go to the Lord in prayer first. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this wonderful day. A good day. Lord, I just thank you for the blessings of our mothers. We thank you for them. They're special. Equipped to do a job that they could only do if you were equipping them. So we just praise you for all of that this morning. We want to honor them and glorify you today. And uh, we just thank you. Just Lord, I ask that you uh, give me strength to speak what I need to speak today to finish it. And I ask that you take my heart and make sure it's clear and cleansed as I deliver this to everybody today. May they be touched by it, take something from it, and be encouraged. And uh, we just give you the glory today in your name. Amen. Well, happy Mother's Day, mothers. Today, the sermon is primarily going to be aimed at you, obviously. But that doesn't mean everybody else is off the hook. Okay? So those of you who aspire to be mothers someday, this is also for you. Those of you husbands and sons, this may not be specifically talking to you, but it's going to be giving you tidbits about how to love your wife better, how to look for a godly woman to be your wife someday and to be the mother of your children. So this is important to all of us. It's going to hit everybody, but primarily I'm talking to moms and uh, let's just go from there. So I think all of us would agree with this following statement. I found this is pretty good. Mothers should be remembered at least once a year, respected every day of the year, and rewarded always for all that they've done for us. So we remember them one, one day a year. We take this one day. But we must respect them every day, not just on a holiday that we set aside. So how do we do that? How do I tackle an enormous task of remembering moms and honoring mothers? How do I honor my own mother? How do I do that? It's an enormous task. It's an impossible task. Another great quote here. Dr. Peter Marshall says, Nothing has ever been said or ever will be said that will be impressive enough, expressive enough, or adequate enough to articulate that peculiar emotion we feel towards our mothers. So nothing I can say is going to be enough, but I'm going to try. I'm going to try my best. I want to honor the women here, godly mothers, and do our best today. While preparing the sermon, I thought maybe I would go the historical track. Maybe I would dig through some of the history books, and I'm kind of a history buff, American history I enjoy. I thought, let's look back through some American history, maybe European history, and find some of these women, these giants, who have more impressive resumes than we could almost ever hope to aspire to. And I came up with one of my personal favorites, Abigail Adams. Anybody else uh, American history buff? You ever seen John Adams' series of TV shows? Awesome. But uh, Abigail Adams, she married a U.S. president, and she also was the mother to a U.S. president. That's pretty lofty to aspire to. God blessed her. How about Marie Curie, pioneer researcher in the field of radioactivity? Anybody remember her from school history books? She was, I didn't know this, I knew she had won a Nobel Prize for her work, but I did not know that she became the first person to win a second Nobel Prize. Very first woman, very first person. 
And she is the only Nobel Prize winner who is also the mother of another Nobel Prize winner. Okay, everybody feeling pretty bad about yourself? Okay. Yeah, pretty amazing. How about Eleanor of Aquitaine? This is European history. Mother of three kings, three separate kings. All of her daughters married into a different royal house in Europe. She's been called by historians the mother of Europe. Uh, Pretty impressive. The list goes on and on and on. So when I started thinking about doing that, I was just like, I ran into this huge volume. There's no way. There's so many. And the reason is because the... Those accomplishments are in the realm of humanity. Whether it's by blind luck or just circumstances, those women, hard work, whatever, they reached those positions, they had those families, they influenced those people, but it was in the realm of humanity. And that's not as impressive to me as some other things that we can find here. There's a different source we can go to. As Christians, we can go to the Bible. We might find less decorated people as far as the way the world sees them, but we're going to see giants of the faith who God used regardless of their circumstances and their backgrounds, regardless of what gifts they possessed. God used them. So the cool thing about the Bible is that, especially on Mother's Day, this is cool, the Bible is and has often been attacked for being very male-centric. Lots of guys, they only talk about the, the men. Only the men were important. There's very few examples. There's some. But when you put the numbers together, it's more men than women. Well, that's easily explained as a cultural thing. The early church or the early Jewish uh, culture was very patriarchal. You know what I mean? It's, it was centered around the male as the authority figure. So it only serves to make sense that the men are going to be the most oft-documented. Certainly in Scripture, the numbers don't lie. But the cool thing about the Bible is that uh, long before we even celebrated Mother's Day here in America, long before it was even socially acceptable to do so, in the Bible they recorded and honored mothers. In those days, you wouldn't have heard a lot of lifting or elevating of the wives or the mothers, at least not in written form, which is why I think it's really interesting about the Bible is that it kind of breaks the mold. Uh, One quote that I have here from a man named Lee Anderson says, Long before we ever celebrated Mother's Day on the second Sunday of May each year, mothers were storied and honored in the Bible. Some might even find that surprising since most ancient cultures were male-oriented. Actually, it's quite amazing that the Bible honors women, and especially mothers, long before it's socially acceptable thing to do. So like I said, this kind of breaks the mold. We have a source that we can go to long before it was appropriate for us to honor mothers. The Bible was doing it. Other thing that I think is really awesome about that is it serves as evidence that Christ's ministry and God's ministry on earth is not limited. It's not limited to gender. It's not limited to any any other variables. God works through his servants regardless of who they are. Men, women, young adults, children. It didn't matter. What mattered was the heart, and God was going to use them. So today, with all that in mind, we're going to honor the mothers here today by looking at what I like to call biblical role moms. I try to come up with a cool, cool phrase, but role model mothers or role moms. What do they look like in the Bible The few examples that we have, what can we learn from them? And again, I have a a decent amount of options to choose from 
in the Bible. I could have gone and talked about Christ's mother. That's the obvious one. I could have talked about Mary. Just for the sake of being interesting, I skipped that, not because she doesn't deserve a place of honor, but I wanted to dig a little bit deeper and see if there's anything else we could find. So three biblical role moms. The first one, the mother who is ideal. Second, the mother who is real. And third, the mother who kneels. Okay, so the first one we're going to look at is the mother who is ideal. Open your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 31. Proverbs 31. And we'll be in verse 10, starting in verse 10. Very common passage. I'm actually reading from the King James Version. I think you guys have New King James, so forgive me for that. Faux pas. But uh, verse 10, I'll start reading. We're going to read to the end of the chapter. Who can find a virtuous woman? For her price is far above rubies. The heart of her husband does safely trust in her, so that he shall have no need of spoil. She will do him good and not evil all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works willingly with her hands. She is like the merchant ships. She brings food from afar. She rises also while it's yet night and gives meat to her household and also a portion to her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She girds her loins with strength and strengthens her arms. She perceives that her merchandise is good. Her candle does not go out at night. She lays her hands to the spindle and her hands hold the dye staff. She stretches out her hands to the poor and reaches forth her hands to the needy. She's not afraid of the snow for her house because all of her household is clothed with scarlet. She makes herself coverings of tapestry. Her clothing is silk and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes fine linen and sells it and delivers girdles unto the merchant. Strength and honor are her clothing, and she shall rejoice in time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and in her tongue is the law of kindness. She looks well to the ways of her house and eats not the bread of idleness. Her children arise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many daughters have done virtuously, but you excel them all. Favor is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman that fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her own works praise her in the gates. Okay, great passage. Women, if you guys haven't bookmarked that in your Bible, awesome. The first time I read this this week, it's not the first time I've ever read it. The first time I read through it this week, I called out to my wife. She was in the other room. I said, Allison, did you know you're in the Bible? And uh, guys, brownie points, okay? If you want to compliment your wife, tell her she's like the woman from Proverbs 31. You'll earn some serious brownie points. I got, I got uh, shoulder massage this week. It was a really good week. So the funny part about this passage, I mean, it's a great passage. But it's written, if you explore it a little bit, this passage is actually written as an acrostic poem. Those of you who are English teachers, you know what that is. An acrostic is a literary form where every sentence starts with 
a different letter or in order, like A, B, C, okay? So they have to make each sentence start with that individual letter. Now, obviously, we can't see that here because it's in English, but in the original Hebrew, this is a poem written in acrostic form. A man named Sean Burt, a professor of religious studies at North Dakota State U, says this, Acrostic poems draw attention to the first letter of each line, and in Proverbs 31, the first letter of each verse begins with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet, all the way from Aleph to Tav. And it's actually, I looked this up, and it's pretty cool. Uh, we don't see those things based on our translations, but uh, you can study that. Look for that at home. This poem is actually serves as like a visual, probably taught to, if you go back to the start of chapter 31, you see that it, these are the words of a man named Lemuel. He's a king, and it's in different translations you'll see talks about being like an oracle lesson taught to Lemuel, presumably when he was young, probably a child. So Lemuel's mom is instilling in him what she has just laid out, this poem, as a way for him to remember. So how do we get young kids to remember things? We teach them, you know, cool little sayings. Every good boy does fine. We have those acrostics. We have those examples. Makes it stick. As a matter of fact, the entire chapter really emphasizes how Lemuel, this king, should rule. The first nine verses talk about how he needs to be a good king and what he needs to do there. What we're focusing on here is what she wants him to find in a wife. Okay, so moms, how many of you have tried to influence a son to find a godly wife or godly girlfriend? This is what's happening here. I think it's kind of funny. She's maybe even beyond the grave. Lemuel's mom is she's in there. She's in his in his noodle. Okay, she's got this in there. But when I think about moms influencing their children, I have to mention Christ's mother, Mary. I love to find a little bit of humor in the Bible, but do you guys remember the wedding at Cana, John chapter 2? you remember that story where they ran out of the wine and Mary comes to Jesus and she's like, there's no wine. <laughs> what are we going to do? And Jesus says, what do you want from me? It's not my time. I'm not going to reveal who I am yet. I'm not going to do any miracles yet. And what does Mary say? She is not deterred at all. She just says, she grabs the servant and she says, just do what he tells you to do. Just do what he tells you to do. He's going to do it. And what does Jesus do in the next verse? He turns it into wine. And he does it. She had influence on him. Okay? Well, you read between those lines, the mother's influence. Uh, and I think that's it's awesome. That's what we're seeing here with Lemuel's mom. She's ingraining into him what kind of wife he should be searching for, and ultimately the mother of his children, what he should be looking for. So I'm going to go, I'm going to do a quick paraphrase. You guys follow along with me. All of that that we read can be boiled down to this. I'm just going to go verse by verse. Verse 10, and mothers, listen, listen, do you see yourself? She's hard to find. She's worth more than rubies. Verse 11, her husband trusts her. Verse 12, she does good to her husband every day, every day. Verse 13, she works willingly. She's not grudging. Verse 14, she's enterprising. She makes things happen. Verse 15, she's diligent. She puts others first. 16, she has good judgment. Verse 17, she has a strong work ethic. Verse 18, she doesn't cut corners. And verse 19, this is the one where she sews. Ooh, that one separates us, doesn't it? How many, how many women are sewers? 
Allison, you saw? That sewing machine has sat, sat idle for a while. Verse 20. <laughs> Verse 20, she has a, there's, there's wood in front of me, so no. She has a heart for those in need. She's not cold-hearted. She cares for the needy. She sees them in need. Verse 21, she's prepared. She takes her preparation seriously. Verse 22, she takes care of her physical appearance. Verse 23, her husband has a good reputation. And that one's big. It seems like it doesn't fit. Well, that's not under my control. What do we just say about influence? There, there is some influence that you do have there. Ultimately, it's not under your total control. Uh, but interesting. Verse 24, she's handy. 25, she's free of anxiety. That's a big one. How about 26? She is a wise and loving counselor. People who need an ear to listen, go to her. 27, she's not idle or lazy. Verse 28, she creates a loving environment. And I think this is one of the biggest ones here. She creates a loving environment. She sets the stage for her whole household. She lays out the props. This is how the play is going to play out. And because of that, she's reaping praise. Her husband, her children, they rise up. They call her blessed. They're proud of her. And finishing up, verse 29, she is excellent or she excels. She surpasses others. She's not content with being uh, average. Verse 30, she fears the Lord. And verse 31, she attains her honor through humility. So when you paraphrase those out, I think if we added the ability to fly, we'd be talking about Wonder Woman. Because that is like the perfect person. Is that attainable? I don't think so. I'm not sure. I I used to joke with my mom. My mom had a little crocheted thing on the wall that had verses from this passage in her kitchen. And I used to joke that she kept that there as a reminder so that when she met this woman, she'd know what she looked like and she could smack her. (laughs) Because this is not possible. Uh, it's just not. I don't see. It's it's kind of like the Ten Commandments. It's uh, by the law is knowledge of sin. It's kind of like that in a way. This is the ultimate where the bar is set. Can't get any better than this. Okay. So is anybody ready to smack me? All right. Well, let, thinking about that, let's look at role mom two, the mother who is real, the mother who's real. Flip over to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter eleven. Again, a often quoted passage. This is like the Christian Hall of Fame. We call it like the Hall of Faith. Some of the giants of Christianity are listed here and why they did. But in verse 31 is where I want you to look. Verse 31 says, By faith the harlot Rahab perished not with those that believed not when she had received the spies with peace. Just that one little verse. Let me say it again. By faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those that didn't believe when she received the spies with peace. So today we're going to talk about a real mom and a mom who would be hard to buy a Mother's Day card for. This is the gritty reality of our world. We're talking about Rahab today. You guys remember the story of Rahab? If you're not familiar with it, 
There's a, a town called Jericho in Israel in the book of Joshua. It depicts the destruction, really, basically like the military campaign against this town. Jericho was a fortified town. You may have heard the phrase, the walls of Jericho. It had these monstrous stone walls. We actually got to see the, the bases of these. They're now under, I don't know, how deep was that? 40 feet of, of dirt. It's, it's way down excavated now. But these walls are massive fortress. Joshua, the leader of Israel, had been told by God that they were going to take Jericho. And so Joshua sends in two spies, these military spies, sends them into Jericho to scout it out. Espionage. And when they're in Jericho, they meet Rahab. And Rahab does an amazing thing. She has a very small but crucial, pivotal role uh, in this whole story. And I want want to make sure we focus on that. So let's briefly examine Rahab and why I feel she is a role mom material. Historians have often referred to Rahab as the Madam of Jericho due to her former profession as a prostitute. And it goes without saying, every time you see her name, almost every time in the Bible, the word harlot or prostitute is used. Uh, So that's, that's, that's just the truth. That's what she was. But... She hid the spies of Israel. Despite that, she hid these two men who were under penalty. They were going to get killed, probably. The king was searching for them. So she hides them on her roof in her house. Jericho was a pagan city, so they did not believe in the God of the Bible, the God of Israel. They believed in however many other gods. But Rahab was so moved, she had so much faith in the God of Israel, she knew that God was about to act and was about to have Jericho destroyed. So fearing God and trusting in God, her faith, she stepped out of the comfort zone and did something dangerous. She harbored these spies and helped them escape unharmed. All she asked in return, if you read the story, is that when the Israelites came in and destroyed Jericho, that they would spare her and spare her household, her family. In Joshua chapter 6, you see the conclusion of that whole story. You find that her faith was rewarded rather than being slaughtered with the entire city. Her family was spared, and they went on to live in Israel. But more importantly, this is the cool part for me, she goes on to become part of the lineage of King David and ultimately Jesus Christ. Don't believe me. Take a look at Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. I'll let you guys... Study this on your own. I'm not going to read all this. This is one of those lists of names where this guy had this son, this guy had this son, and it goes on. Oftentimes in the Bible, we like to gloss over those. There is some real meat to them. This one in particular, if there's ever one that you don't want to gloss over, this is it. Because it's talking about Jesus Christ's lineage. It's talking about Jesus. You can see that. Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, you'll find Rahab. Rahab is in there. That Yes, that is the same Rahab we're talking about in Joshua. She is King David's great, great, I think, two great grandmas. So how does a person with a past like that get honored and become part of the lineage of kings? Okay, that's where the, the, the interesting part is. James Merritt, who's an author of a great devotional book called 52 Weeks with Jesus, says this. It's actually fitting that God would use this group of misfits to give us a Savior. 
And among that group are other people who have questionable pasts. But it's fitting that God would use this group of misfits to give us a Savior because the Savior Jesus would actually be a misfit himself. No, he didn't sin, but he shattered preconceptions everywhere he went. And through Jesus' family tree, God puts his grace on display. God reminds us that he can do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Pick up broken pieces and put them together. Take broken lives and make them whole. Gather broken hopes and make them reality. And I think that's, that's what we want to take away from this, is that there's only a couple of verses about this woman, but there's so much in between. Is she a hard-to-like character? Maybe. Was she used of God? There's no doubt. Her story, though brief in the Bible, speaks volumes to Christian moms. At least it should. It's figuratively yelling that nobody is beyond God's grace. The grace is so boundless that it can reach down, redeem, and then raise somebody, anybody, to eternal dignity, to a place of honor. And that's very true, what we see with Rahab here. So moms, if you put your faith and trust in him, he can change what you were and use what you are. He really can. And that is evidenced right there numerous times. But Rahab is a great example. So considering that, let's move on to number three. Final one. The mother who kneels. The mother who kneels. Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 1. 1 Samuel chapter 1. I want to be brief on this one. Again, I'm kind of doing flybys of these stories. I just want you to get the main points. But uh, we're going to be talking about a woman named Hannah. And Hannah's story is very simple. The first two chapters of 1 Samuel, you can do this. I highly encourage you to. This is a great one. This is like a gem. One of the best examples of a godly mother in the Bible. 1 Samuel chapter 1 and 2. Look at those. But I'm kind of just going to simplify them for you. Hannah's story is basically this. She couldn't have children. She was barren. No kids. Or her husband had another wife in those days. It was customary. If your first wife couldn't have children, you could take another wife. Even though God didn't you know, smile on that, that was a customary practice. So Hannah was the first wife, couldn't have kids, and she was just devastated by this. I know we may have some women like that in the room. I'm not taking that lightly. This is you, okay, if you're that woman. Hannah was devastated. She prayed regularly, weeped and prayed that God would give her a son. She promised him in return that she would dedicate that son to the Lord for his entire life, the entirety of his life. She was true to her vow ultimately, and God blessed her further by giving her many more children. As a matter of fact, I think gave her five more children after Samuel was born, was the first boy. So God listened to the prayer. She reached out to him. She trusted him. She put her faith in him. In Scripture, Hannah is actually like the true prayer warrior mom. If there's ever a prayer warrior mom, it's her. A tidbit of her prayer in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 8, has actually been thought by theologians to be incorporated into Mary's famous uh, song or her prayer called the Magnificat. Sometimes we talk about that at Christmas. Verse 51 of Luke chapter 1, they kind of incorporate the same thing. So it's possible that Hannah served as... Inspiration for Mary when she was giving that prayer. But the three key points of Hannah's prayers, habits, 
her habits are. Something that we need to take an example from. The first one is that she prayed before Samuel was born. Again, I'm not going to read all of this. But if you look through, you'll see Samuel wasn't even in her womb. She didn't even think she could have kids. She was praying for this baby well before he was even thought possible. She wasn't just praying for herself. I think sometimes if you read that story, you'll you'll think she was just praying because she wanted a baby. She wanted to have honor in the community. I think that's only part of it. I think she wanted to, A, bless her husband by having having children, but B, I think she wanted to pray for this child. Uh, She knew he was going to have a hard road. As a matter of fact, you can look at verse 11. 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 11, you'll see, she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your handmaid and remember me and not forget me, but will give unto me a man child, then I will give unto the Lord all the days of his life and there shall no razor come upon his head. Interesting points about that. She said his entire life. Okay, in those days, the priests, the Levites were the priest kind of class. They normally would be dedicated to the Lord for a period of about 25 years. I think it went from age roughly 25 to age 50. I think it was customary. But she said all the days of his life, past his infancy, once he can basically start walking. So this is above and beyond anything normal in that culture. That That's an interesting point. And then also the other point there is that they said, No razor was going to be upon his head. Now, I don't like that because I like shaving my head. This guy was going to have long hair. One of those dudes with long, mangy hair. That's who he was. But if you look and do some more Bible study, you'll see in the book of Judges, chapter 13. Remember Samson, the other guy famous for the long hair? God required that his parents, that they never cut his hair. That was a requirement of his being dedicated to the Lord, okay? And if he did, there was consequences. This one was voluntary. She said, I'm going to do it just because I praise you to glorify you for giving me a gift. So this is like really taking on a serious burden for this kid before he's even born. So do you think she was praying for him then? We can pretty much infer that, yes, she was. The next habit is that she prayed after he was born. First Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Flip over a page. This is what you will hear most often quoted. This is the song of Hannah or the prayer of Hannah. Again, she goes through this very eloquent song slash prayer and praises God. This is after he, he answers her prayer and gives Samuel to her. And she just basically just pouring out her praise to God. So she's happy here as opposed to when she was sad before she didn't think she could have kids. So notice the emotional state changed, but her prayer life was consistent. That didn't change. She entrusts her son to God because she has faith in him. He showed her. She has proof. He gave her a son. She couldn't have kids. So she entrusts him. She knows that Samuel is in good hands. There's no reason to fear. And then finally, the third point about her praying habits. She keeps praying even when the situation is ultimately out of her her realm of influence. Samuel is no longer in the household anymore. If you go on and read chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, and flip over to there, you'll see. So Samuel was born, spends a little bit of time at home becoming an infant so he can, he can be on his own. Then he gets dedicated, 
And then finally, here you see years later, the rest of the story. Verse 19, it says, Samuel's mother made him a little coat and brought it to him from year to year. When she came up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. And in that one little verse, it really tells us a lot. It means that her faith has stayed consistent. She's still going to church every year. In those days, they had to travel to do their offering for God. But she comes every year. She's thinking about Samuel. She makes him a coat every year. So he's got clothes. I think it's it's not a stretch for us to imagine that she's praying for him along the way. So her prayer life hasn't changed. That's the one thing from all that I want you to see. It was consistent. Her worshiping God is consistent. It stayed the same throughout. So talk about influence. Hannah knew that the best place to influence her family and her children was really on her knees in prayer. She knew that God had the power to give her children. God had the power to sustain that child and use him. And she was influencing in all that. She was part of it. She's given a place in the word of God, a place of honor because of that. So again, sort of like Rahab, she's lifted to a place of dignity because of her faith and because of her consistency in worshiping the Lord. So as I close, those were the three. How do you measure up, moms? Do you see yourself in any of those descriptions? Are you in absolutely none of those categories? I hope not. Are you ideal like the mother in Proverbs 31? My guess is no. But even if you are able to attain some of those benchmarks, I don't think you can sustain them. But we need grace and we need a savior. So that's what that points to. Maybe you're more like Rahab. You've made mistakes, but you're allowing God to use you. And maybe you're like Hannah. You pray consistently and you recognize that prayer is where you can make your impact. My hope is that you are a mix, a good solid mix of Rahab and Hannah, that you find yourself real. You're not perfect. You know that. But you're allowing God to use you for his glory.